But Egypt was a devastated nation. Moses had been sent by God to tell Pharaoh to let his people go, and God had told Moses to to say to Pharaoh, if you do not let my people go, I'm going to start sending plague after plague. And uh, Pharaoh, because of his hard heart, would not let the people go. And so God sent nine plagues, and Egypt was a devastated nation. Their people were diseased, their uh, livestock had died, their crops had been destroyed. Uh, But yet still, Pharaoh would not let the people go. So God decided to send one final plague. And this was going to be a devastating plague because this plague involved sending the, <coughs> excuse me, sending the destroyer across the land and every firstborn male creature was going to die. And that, of course, included humans. And so literally hundreds of thousands were going to be killed because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. God, of course, wanted to protect the Israelite people, so he promised them that they would be protected, they would be delivered, if you will, if they would obey His commands as far as celebrating a very special meal that was going to be called the Passover meal and that it involved something that was known as the Passover lamb. God had several reasons in mind in wanting to set up this particular feast. First of all, He wanted the people to remember He knew that Israelite people, like all people, would, as time went on, would forget about this event and would forget about the great deliverance that they were about to to have taken place in their lives. And so he set up this special meal in order to remind them so they would not forget. He also wanted them to understand and appreciate the price of deliverance that was going to take place if they were going to be freed from slavery. He did wanted to make sure they understood that there were some things involved, some sacrifices that had to take place if they were going to be delivered. And therefore, he set up this special meal to remind them, and it's called the Passover meal, or the, a meal involving the Passover lamb. And of course, as we've already said, uh, the section that is discussed is in Exodus chapter 12, and goes down through verse 14. Now, we're not going to take the time this morning to discuss all those verses, but we hope that you have your Bible with you, and we're going to be looking at some things in the text. But we need to understand that even though this Passover meal was something that took place many, many years ago in the land of Egypt for the very first time, we need to make sure that we appreciate the fact that it has some things to do with us today also. Because we also have a Passover lamb, And his name is Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John the Baptist saw him walking down the way, in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he says, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. After Jesus uh, came to him for baptism, and, and he was later on being talked about with some of the other disciples, and John happened to be in the Same vicinity again in chapter 1. He says, Behold the Lamb of God. Paul reminds us, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, that Jesus Christ is our Passover that was sacrificed for us. So we have a connection with the Passover Lamb in the fact that we too have a Passover Lamb and His name is Jesus Christ. But also we, because of this Passover Lamb, have been delivered from slavery. Slavery. 
In Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, we are reminded that you once were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and now you are the slaves or the servants of righteousness. We too at one time were hell in slavery, where Pharaoh being Satan and the land of Egypt being the evils of this world. But thanks be to God, God gave us a Passover lamb so that we could be delivered from that slavery. But also as we think about the Passover lamb, we need to think about the fact that there's a connection to us and this particular meal that we're going to eat in just a few moments. I think that is no coincidence that Jesus established the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover meal, making the connection as he does in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28 when he talks about the blood that's being shed and making the connection to the Passover lamb blood, making, though he doesn't make, make it specifically, but he says, my blood, this cup represents my blood, which is shed, the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So as we go through and look at chapter 12, we want to make sure that we make the connection that we're just not talking about something that happened thousands of years ago, but we're talking about something that's very relevant and very important to us today as we look at the different aspects of this particular lamb. Now, as we think about this lamb this morning, I want you to first of all think about this, how that it was a beloved lamb. Here was a lamb that someone cared about. Here is a lamb that someone loved. Now, I'm going to put the verses on the screen here, and you can look at them in your Bible also, but for the uh, sake of, of having our lesson go by in a very quick way, uh, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3 says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the <coughs> excuse me, tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Then verse 6 says, You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Now, what I want you to think about is not in the text. In fact, if you go back and look at verses 4 and 5, there's nothing mentioned about what I'm going to say here. But I also want you to read between the verses here in your mind and think about what's taking place here for these 14 days. We know from tradition and also from secular history that there's something more here than just somebody picking out a lamb and say, that's the lamb we're going to kill one day. Instead, as the text brings out, it says a lamb for a household. What the Jews actually did with this Passover lamb is that they would bring the lamb into their house and this lamb would become a part of their family. This lamb would be fed. This lamb would be washed. This lamb would be a part of the family. Some Israelite people even named their lamb and gave it a name. And this sweet, cute little lamb became a part of the family for this 14 days. It would run around the house. I can picture it in my mind, sometime climbing in bed with some of the children and whatnot and spending the night. This lamb became a lamb that was a very special part of the family. And then on the 14th day, they slid its little throat. I know some of you have been raised on livestock farms, and as is the practice most, with most farmers and, and those who raise livestock, you don't allow your children to get too close to the livestock. Uh, you don't want your livestock becoming pets. Uh, you normally don't let your children name livestock because of the fact that the time will come 
When there's going to be a slaughter, the time will come when an animal is going to be butchered to provide food for the table. And therefore, you don't want that connection, uh, that loving connection that you're going to have to put to death something that you love. But uh, evidently, this was the case with the Israelite people. I know some of you have had pets in the past and have pets now, and, and those pets are somebody that you love, that you care, and you take care of, and, and they bring you companionship. In fact, I know that some of you here, because you called me when the time came and one of your pets died, and how you wanted to talk to me about your pet dying. I remember even going to some of your houses when your pets died. The reason being is because you love that pet, you love that animal, and even though it was an animal, yet there was a companionship and a love there that very few people fully understand. Uh, We do not like to think about something that we love dying. Uh, When Karen was growing up, there was, um, uh, they raised chickens at their house, and these chickens were allowed to run around the yard. They weren't in a coop or anything, they were just chickens in the yard, and And uh, Karen, of course, as a little girl, would go out and play with these chickens and chase them around. But then one day it occurred to her that the chicken in the yard is the chicken in the pot. And she couldn't eat chicken for a long time. What's my point in all this? The point is that when when the Jews brought this animal into their house, it wasn't just some old dumb animal that they picked out for a sacrifice. This became a part of their family. This was a beloved lamb. This was a lamb that had meaning to them. And yet, at the end of the 14 days, they slit the throat of this little baby lamb. Now, why is all that going on? What's the point of all this? Well, I believe that God wanted us to think about another lamb. Think about another lamb named Jesus Christ and how that something that, or someone that somebody loved had to die because of my sins and because of your sins. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, that wasn't a stranger. That was a son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When Jesus came out of the water, after being baptized in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You see, that wasn't a stranger, that was a son that died on a cross. And not only was it a son, it was a beloved son. It wasn't a stranger, but it was someone who had a name. He is our Savior, so we call Him Jesus. He is our ruler, so we call Him Lord. He is our God, so we call Him Emmanuel. He is God's anointed one, so we call Him Christ. Jesus wanted us, I mean, God wanted us to understand that when Jesus died on the cross and going all the way back to the day of the first Passover, we're starting to see now for the very first time the price that had to be paid, the penalty of sin. Someone you love had to die. Can you imagine having a child born in your family and knowing at the very first time that child took breath coming out of the womb, that from that day forward you knew that child was going to be put to death? Can you imagine raising a child for the purpose of being put to death? 
Well, imagine what it was like for Mary and Joseph when they came to realize that one day this child that has been given to them in a miraculous way was going to be put to death. Can you imagine Mary at the cross when she saw that crown of thorns on Jesus' forehead and remembering that she was the very first one to kiss that forehead? Or seeing the nails driven into his feet and realizing that she was the one that saw him take those first baby steps? Or imagine seeing that blood flowing from his hands and understanding that it was her hand that those hands first reached up to grab? You see, here at the very beginning, when they bring this lamb into the household, we're understanding that something that someone loves has to die. Imagine the host of heaven and God himself. Jesus Christ came to this earth, realizing his whole mission on this earth, from the day that he was born, was for the purpose of dying for mankind. It wasn't just any lamb that died. It was a beloved lamb. But also notice as we look at the text, we see that it's a shared lamb. The text tells us in Exodus 12 and verse 4, And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, ye shall make your count for the lamb. Now God just wasn't trying to practice some economy here. His emphasis here is on the sharing. In other words, if you have more than you need, you need to share. He wanted to make sure that there was the idea of communion, if you will, and sharing involved. He wanted his entire family of that household, and if there was too much for that family to bring another household in, and they wanted them to be all one family under one roof, sharing in the same meal. The emphasis here is not on wasting. The emphasis here is on the sharing. Sharing something together. (coughs) And we easily see this taking place today. When we come together with the Lord's Supper, we are taking part in a shared lamb. We are all one family under one roof. And we all as one family partake of the body of Jesus Christ that is symbolized in this bread. We all as one family come together and partake of the fruit of the vine which represents His blood as He hung on the cross. And we come together as a family in communion symbolizing the fact that we are one family. We share the same deliverance. We share the same Passover lamb. We are being protected and delivered from the destroyer, if you will, as we partake of this meal because it symbolizes the fact That our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, died once for all so that we can have forgiveness of sins. That body of that beloved lamb that we share hung on that cross and the body of that, and that blood of that beloved lamb we share as we think about that blood is where we find our remission of sins. But notice also what happens in the text. That's That's pretty amazing. Notice it says in verse 5 that it has to be the best lamb. Not only is it a beloved lamb and a shared lamb, it's got to be the best lamb. The book of Exodus puts it very simply. It says, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. In other words, when the head of the family went out to the livestock to pick out a lamb, that's going to be the Passover lamb, he couldn't just pick out any lamb. 
Uh, it had to be the very best lamb. A lamb that had to be, make sure it was at the right age and that was at this maturity where it could be at its very best. It hadn't gotten, it wasn't too young, it wasn't too old. Is this the right time, one year old? But also that head of household had to look at that lamb and had to check his body to make sure there were no marks, there were no scratches, there were no scars, there were no blemishes, there was nothing wrong with its face, there was nothing wrong with its legs, there was nothing wrong with its body at all. This had to be the best lamb possible. And of course the reasoning behind that is that God is going to accept a sacrifice for someone. It had to be the very best sacrifice And I think a lesson we can learn from that, even in our day and age, if we're going to make sacrifices to God, even in the form of our contribution, it needs to be the very best that we can do. But once again, as we think about it being the best lamb that had to be picked out, a lamb without blemish, obviously we're coming back to the New Testament age and thinking about our lamb, our Passover lamb. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 remind us, that we have not been redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold that was a part of the vain lifestyle of our forefathers, but we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb without blemish and without spot. Think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ died at the tender age of 33 years. Why at 33 years? I mean, think about all the good that Jesus could have done if he lived maybe to 40. Or maybe moved into 50 or maybe moved into 60. Think about all the wise things he could have shared with us. All the miracles that he could have performed. Well, evidently, God thought that the perfect time for Jesus to die or the perfect time that he would be the perfect man was at the age of 33 And the most perfect man who ever walked on the age of this earth died at 33 because he was the perfect man. He was our lamb without spot and without blemish. And of course the theology behind that is very clear. If someone was going to take our place, it had to be someone who was the perfect sacrifice. If Jesus had any blemish whatsoever, any sin whatsoever, any transgression whatsoever, he could not be our sacrifice because he would have his own sins and transgressions to worry about. But you know what? He was without blemish, and therefore he was the best lamb. But notice how the text progresses. Not only is it a beloved lamb and a shared lamb and the best lamb, It's also a bleeding lamb. Notice what the text says. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. I think we all understand how important blood is in our lives. Uh, We can't live without blood. In fact, some of you donate blood through blood drives, and uh, hospitals are always asking for people to make donations for blood. Uh, There may have been times in your life when you knew someone who was very ill, and you purposely went down to the hospital to donate your blood because you wanted to do what you could to help save this person because we understand that there's life in the blood. And the Israelite people on this occasion, God wanted them to understand the fact that salvation was only going to be found in blood. Blood had to be spilt. 
The Bible is very clear that the soul that sinneth, it must die. Blood must be spilled. So God set up a, sap, a substitute for the Israelite people in that they would kill their lambs and there would be a shedding of blood so they could get deliverance from the destroyer and get deliverance from being in captivity in the land of Egypt. And they took this particular blood and as the text tells us, they put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses. A lentil is not a word we use very often anymore, but that's the cross piece that goes across the top. Now, it always puzzled me why God picked this particular representation to represent uh, salvation, why God picked this particular event. The lamb was dead. The blood had been spilled. So why go to all the trouble, if you will now, to go outside, take a basin of this blood where you cut the lamb's throat, put a mop in it, if you will, a brush, And you sprinkle some of it up here on top of the door. And you put some on this side of the door. And you put some on this side of the door. Why in the world did God have them do that? Well, one obvious observation is uh, when the destroyer came across, he could look down, if you will, and he'll look down at the house of this particular Israelite family. And he would see the blood on the door. And he would spare that family. He would skip that family. There would be deliverance given to that family. And that may well be what was going on there, because the text talks about that. But I don't believe that, that God, in His infinite wisdom, would know, not know which families needed to be protected and what families did not need to be protected. So I think there's something else going on here. Uh, there's some symbolism, if you will, going on here that starts moving now to our Passover lamb. Picture in your mind what's happening here. The Israelite... Head of household goes out into the front of the house and he takes that blood and he puts that blood on top of the doorway and as he's putting that blood on top of the doorway, what's happening? That blood starts falling to the ground and a pool of blood gathers at, at his feet in front of the door. And as he's putting the blood on either side, that blood starts running down the doorpost, if you will, And notice what's starting to take shape. Even thousands of years ago, picture in your mind blood running down the head of a man. Picture blood, if you will, forming at the feet of a man. Picture blood, if you will, coming out of the hands of a man. And think about how that you look at that doorpost, you see the blood of the crown, you see the blood of the nails, both in the hands and the feet. It was to keep the destroyer out of the house, but when our Passover lamb died, it was so we could get entrance into the house of God because of the blood of the lamb that was shed for each and every one of us. I think God had in mind when he put that blood on the doorpost to not only commemorate the bleeding lamb that was shed at twilight, but a bleeding lamb, our Passover lamb, They had his head pierced with a crown of thorns. They had his hands pierced with nails and his feet pierced with nails. He bled and died for each and every one of us. To use the same scripture again because it's so appropriate, in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19, we have not been redeemed by corruptible things such as silver and gold. That was a part of the vain lifestyle of our fathers. But we have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb. It was a bleeding Lamb. But notice what else the text says. 
It also makes the point that not only did it have to be a beloved lamb and a shared lamb and the best lamb and a bleeding lamb, but it had to be the whole lamb. What in the world are you talking about, Jim? Well, look at this, what it says in the text. Verses 8 and 9 of Exodus 12. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head and its legs, its inner parts. I want you to dissect that verse for a moment and try to figure out what's going on here. Why is God so specific in his instructions about how this lamb is going to be cooked? Well, notice, first of all, that he says that it needs to be roasted on the fire. In other words, this is something that's going to be put on a wooden stick, if you will. If you've ever roasted anything over an open fire, uh, what you do is you run a wooden stick. In our day and age, we may use something metal, but if you're roasting a pig or something over an open fire, you put that animal on a stick. And during this time period, it more than likely would have been a wooden stick. And they run that through the animal, and then you'll see somebody that would turn that animal as that animal's being roasted. So picture that in your mind, first of all. And notice what else it says. It says it cannot be boiled in water. Now, why in the world would God give such a weird command? I want you to roast it, and I absolutely forbid you to boil it in water. Well, what's going on here? Could it be he's wanting to make sure that they never forget what they're eating? You see, if you boil it something in water, you take the animal and you put it in a pot and you hide it. This is something cooking in a pot. You don't know what's cooking in that pot. But if you put it on a wooden stick and you put it in an open fire for everybody to see, you never forget what you're eating. But it doesn't stop there. Notice what he emphasizes after saying it needs to be roasted. It's got to be observable. He says you make sure you keep its head and its legs and its inner parts. In other words... You don't butcher this animal. You need to make sure you keep this animal looking just like it was before you put it to death. This needs to look like a lamb. Now, in our day and age, if somebody brought a lamb to a table with all its legs and all and its head and everything, that might make me a little squeamish. Or some people can't even stand the thought of somebody bringing a whole fish to a table with its head and its eyes. Because what do we do in society today? And even going back a long time ago, what did people do? Well, if we're going to eat an animal, we want that animal prepared in such a way, butchered in such a way, that we're not reminded of what we're eating. We may know that beef comes from a cow. We may know that that chicken comes from an animal that's been running in the yard before. We may know that that barbecue sandwich that we're eating belonged to a pig at one time, but we don't want to be reminded of that so much. We just want to enjoy our meal. So why did God do it this way? Once again, the emphasis is he wanted them to never forget what was being put to death. He wanted them to never forget what had to die for them. He wanted them to never forget that's just not meat on a stick, but instead that is that beloved lamb, that is that shared lamb, that is that bleeding lamb, that is that best lamb. 
He wanted the entire family to realize that something they loved had to die, and there it is right there on that wooden stick for all the household to see. Folks, you don't have to use too much of your imagination to see where I'm going with this. Jesus Christ hung on a wooden tree for all the world to see that the beloved Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world was suspended between heaven and earth on a wooden tree for all the world to see. God didn't sacrifice Him in secret. God didn't have a plan where we'll take care of this and let Him die in quiet dignity. But instead, He put Him before the entire world and says, this is my sacrifice so that you can have salvation from your sins. Jesus Christ was left intact. And I think that's the reason why both the prophecy and the reality, when those Roman soldiers came to make sure that He was dead, the other criminals, quote-unquote, had their legs broken. But when they got to Jesus, they realized He was already dead, thus fulfilling the prophecy that He was left intact. Not a bone of his body was broken. You see, that Passover lamb that the Israelites had to make sure they kept as a whole lamb was the precursor, the type of what was going to come soon to save all mankind. And that's the whole Passover lamb of Jesus Christ. There is a difference though I want to share with you this morning about that Passover lamb that the Israelites first sacrificed back and their deliverance from Egypt and our Passover lamb today, Jesus Christ. There's a big, big difference. And that is, our lamb, Jesus Christ, was a willing lamb. I can imagine in that household when the day came, that 14th day came, and as the clocks were ticking toward twilight... And people were thinking about what they were about to do in killing this lamb. The time eventually came when they were grabbing that lamb. And maybe the lamb, and I don't know this for sure, but maybe that lamb thought, oh, they're just picking me up because they've been petting me for 14 days and they just want to pet me some more. Or maybe he sensed what was about to happen. And even if he didn't, when he saw the knife come out and felt that sharp edge come across his throat, he knew what was happening then. And I imagine that lamb kicked. I imagine that lamb bleated. I imagine that lamb did everything he could to get out of the grasp of whoever was holding him. But Jesus Christ went to the cross willingly. In fact, in Isaiah 53, I don't think it's by accident that this particular point is made. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus Christ, because he loved us so much, because God's grace was so great and his mercy so marvelous, Jesus Christ willingly became our Passover lamb so that we can have salvation from our sins. Now let me ask you one final question. What would have happened if the blood wasn't spilt? What would have happened if the head of that Israelite family did not go find the best lamb and did not follow the instructions 
and did not apply the blood to that house, what would have happened to that family? Well, we saw what happened to the Egyptian people. The firstborn of every family died, including Pharaoh's son. It was the turning point in allowing the people to go. So if the blood wasn't applied in that situation and death would have been brought upon the household, how much more important is it today to make sure we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our hearts and to our lives if we're going to be saved, if we're going to spend eternity in heaven? So something to consider this morning is simply this. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? The Bible tells us if you're going to apply the blood to your soul, if you're going to apply that life-giving blood, if you're going to be saved from our sins because of the blood, we know we come in contact with that blood in baptism. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, we are pointed at, it's pointed out that our sins are washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But yet we are reminded also in Acts 22 and verse 16, when uh, Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, had seen the resurrected Lord and believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and he was waiting in the city to be told what to do so that he could be saved. Ananias, the preacher, came to him and tells him in verse 16 of Acts 22, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. You see the connection there. John says in Revelation 1.5, We're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. But Ananias reminds us we come in contact with that blood by being buried in the watery grave of of baptism. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, who this happened to, reminds us that as many of us who have been baptized into his death are the ones who are going to be saved. In other words, baptism is like the death of Jesus Christ We come in contact with the blood. And as we mentioned earlier in the same chapter, in verses 17 and 18, Paul says, You were the slaves or servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, that pattern, that similitude, the likeness. You have obeyed from that heart that form of doctrine which was delivered unto you, and you now have become servants or slaves of righteousness. What was the pattern, the form they obeyed? They obeyed the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They died to the old man of sin. They are buried in the watery grave of baptism. They rise to walk in newness of life. And Paul very clearly expresses all those actions in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. So this morning, we have to ask this question once again. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you have a need this morning to either become a Christian or there's some other need that we can help you with, some prayer we can offer in your behalf? We want you to come as together we stand and sing.